You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Hello everyone, my name's Malcolm. Uh, I, I occasionally preach here and attend this church and enjoy it. It's good to be back after uh, Christmas time away, so I hope everyone had a great Christmas and that you had power and water and stuff like that. And if you didn't, that you do now and that you truly understand how miraculous those things are. So welcome back to our series in the Gospel of John. We, had, uh, we continued in chapter 12 last week and this week we're up to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. This chapter is a crucial transition in John's Gospel. Uh, it begins with what... It, it begins, rather, this chapter is the beginning of what is called the Final Discourse. Fancy name. Um, but this is just a lengthy section running from chapter 13 to chapter 17, which recounts how Jesus taught his disciples on the last night before he was nailed to a cross to die. So it's Jesus' teaching on that last night. Now I spent some time trying to create an elegant sermon from the key points of this chapter, uh, but in the end I realised, a lot like Matt, that I just needed to present John's text and explore what it meant. So let's dive in to the text starting in verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robes, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel He had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, Then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash, except for the feet, to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, Not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again 
and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Okay. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 14, Jesus said, And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Right? That sounds like a command, right? If so, then why don't you see churches doing this on a regular basis? We just did communion. Why don't we do feet washing every second Sunday or something? <laughs> the, reason, the reason for this is actually, it's both complex and simple. You see, when you read the Bible, even Jesus' words like this, we're reading what is in fact a complex piece of literature. The Gospels themselves, this is the Gospel of John, are a type of ancient biography that follows certain literary conventions. I'm not going to tell you all about that. Go and read a, a book on the Gospels. Jesus himself, when he spoke, used various forms of communication to share his message. If we take, say, a parable, such as the parable of the unjust steward, you may not be familiar with that one, go and look it up, and interpret that parable as fact, well, we're going to get very confused. If we take hyperbole, such as Jesus' demand to cut out our own eye if it causes us to sin, well, we're going to cause ourselves a bit of damage, right? If we take that literally. In the same way, if we take an example of a principle such as this and interpret the example as a straightforward command, we'll miss the bigger point. Now the question, the question is, how do we know whether a particular passage is a parable, hyperbole, an example, something else, or, or, or just a simple command? And the answer, as I'm sure if you've been to Bible college or you've done any sort of Bible study um, stuff, you'll know that the answer is threefold. It's context, context, context. Okay, so first we look at the immediate context, the text around the passage. Is this a collection of parables? Is it labelled as a parable? Does it say Jesus told them a parable? In this case we don't have any of that. We have a straightforward historical record of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. Jesus sees an opportunity to teach the disciples, so he responds in the moment 
we can see in verse 4, he was sitting down. He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and washed their feet. He wasn't waiting at the door to wash their feet. He hadn't planned this. He seized an opportunity. He saw that somebody, there hadn't been anybody washing their feet. And so he seized this opportunity. So that's one clue. Jesus was responding to a particular cultural situation. The second context to examine is the broader context of the text, such as, well, the whole Bible, along with the historical context. Is foot washing a common religious metaphor in the Bible? As it happens, no, it's not. This is the only time we read of it. But, of course, washing, washing is a common metaphor. And Jesus is clearly leaning into this metaphor when he responds to Peter, as we read here. Jesus says, you disciples are clean, but not all of you. And John, in writing the gospel, really wants us to understand that this is a metaphor because he he explicitly applies it to Judas there in verse 11. Judas's soul was filthy, not his body. Now we know from the end of John's Gospel and from the rest of the New Testament that the metaphor of washing is applied to the effect of Jesus' blood on our souls. It's what we were just remembering in communion. So we can see here that Jesus is relating his act of foot washing to his saving death on the cross. He's using this as, a, as an example of a principle somehow. But since the washing of feet in particular is not a common thing in the Bible, we must ask ourselves why Jesus chose to do this particular action and ask his disciples to follow his example. What, what was he exemplifying? In a moment, when we look further into chapter 13, we'll see how he uses this as an example of something he wants the disciples to do. But, but first, let's look at the historical context and the cultural perspective. What, what was foot washing in Jesus' time? Well, in Jesus' time, foot washing was a pretty yucky job, right? Feet got very dirty on dusty, manure-covered streets and roads. Not just dust there, there's manure as well, so it's pretty gross. They were protected only by sandals, so you really needed to wash your feet. Generally, only servants would wash feet, and... It was usually only lower non-Jewish servants, so foreign servants. If a mother wanted to give an extravagant expression of her love, she might wash one of her children's feet. That's a really extravagant expression of love. But a father would never stoop to that. It's beneath his dignity. And as for a rabbi, well, it's virtually unthinkable. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, a lord was unthinkable for somebody in that position to, to take on such a, 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 a horrible job. It's, it's actually, 
It's extremely hard for our modern minds to understand how shocking Jesus' action was because this very action, this action that we're talking about, and of course his even more shocking action of dying on a cross, these actions have so completely transformed our culture. Before Jesus, the idea of a servant leader was an oxymoron. A servant was at one end of the social scale. A leader was at the other end of the social scale. How can you put those two together? It just doesn't make any sense. But our concept of servant leadership, combined with our generally quite clean feet, makes our attempts to reenact this amazing action of Jesus, almost meaningless. Uh, it's to try to think of a modern example. Maybe if your member of parliament, federal parliament, turned up to unblock your disastrously messy toilet, maybe that might be sort of a comparison. But even that, parliamentarians are supposed to be servant leaders. And the idea of servant leadership comes from here, from Jesus. So it's really hard for us to understand just how radical Jesus' action here was. But from the broader context, we can see that Jesus is saying, don't be afraid to demean yourself in order to show that you care for one another. Okay? Now... Finally, we can look at the broadest context possible, looking at 2,000 years of understanding and application of this passage. What we find is that Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet is generally understood as an example of his great love for them. In fact, most teachers believe Jesus was using this action to prepare the disciples to understand his death on the cross so he made this he performed this radical action to get his disciples in the right mindset for the radical action that he was about to do the next day paul actually talks about jesus movement toward the cross in philippians quoting from what was probably a hymn already common in the church a decade a decade or so after jesus death in Philippians 2, he says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So just as the cross became a symbol and an example for us, so that when we take up our cross, we don't literally carry around a huge chunk of wood to get nailed to, so in the same way foot washing is a lesser symbol and an example for us. Jesus says, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you.
Now, I mentioned that Jesus was going to use his foot washing as an example in his teaching towards the end of the chapter. So let's just skip over the details of Judas' betrayal straight to that teaching. We jump to verse 31. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer, and as I told the Jewish leaders... You'll search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In the first part of this teaching, Jesus reveals that his time has now come. He speaks of glory and glorification and, and then of going away. He's speaking, of course, of the cross. Despite its ugliness, Jesus understands what the cross is truly about. It's truly about God's glory. God's glory here is his majesty, his worthiness, his his goodness, his righteousness, his justice, and his mercy. So, in light of God's glory and Jesus' eminent departure, Jesus has a new commandment for his disciples. Let me show you the ESV translation, which is a bit more memorable. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Of course, the idea that the disciples should love one another is hardly new, is it? In the other Gospels, Jesus has already taught this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Right? The disciples are neighbours of each other, so they, they should be loving each other. These are the two greatest commandments, and they're often represented as the vertical and horizontal directions of love, as in this diagram. This shows them in different contexts. So what then is left to say about loving? In fact, there are many ministries, many churches that don't take this new commandment of Jesus very seriously. They see it, I don't know, perhaps as redundant. For example, one of my favourite ministries, this is a great ministry, I love it, but they say this, they say there are three great loves at the heart of Christianity. Love for God, love for your neighbour and love for the lost. I believe this is tragically false. The first two loves, yes, certainly biblical, because they're simply the first and the second greatest commandment. But the third, loving the lost, the lost here, of course, are those who, are not who have not yet abandoned their lives to Jesus. 
It might shock you to discover that nowhere in the Bible are we explicitly instructed to love the lost. Now, I, I don't think, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we should not love the lost. Okay? I'm just saying that the Bible never gives us that precise command. Instead, we read things like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have eternal life. The world here is essentially the lost. But note that this is an observation about God, not a commandment to us. Also, Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. This is... Jesus' articulation of his ministry before the cross. And, but this is quite clearly not our ministry as the church. We're not limited to, to the lost sheep of Israel. We also read, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, our enemies are not always the lost, but sometimes... They are. And Jesus tells us to love them, especially when they're hard to love, especially when they're our enemies. And of course the lost might also be our neighbours, in which case they're already covered by the second commandment. We also see in scripture Paul's deep compassion for the lost and the way the church remains in the world as Jesus' body in order to reach the lost. There's lots of other things in scripture that make it clear that we are to love the lost. But it's not one of the three great loves at the core of Christianity. That's just not biblical. Instead, the biblical third love is this new commandment to love one another. Now at this point, you might be a bit confused. You might be wondering why Jesus saw fit to give such a commandment. Why does he need to tell his followers to love one another? Isn't it redundant? How is it new? Now it's important to pay attention to the details. Let's look carefully at what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The first thing to notice is that Jesus qualifies what he means by love. Right? He's not just asking his disciples to love one another in some vague, love is love sort of way. Rather, he gives a specific sort of love that they are to show to one another, namely the way that he has loved. Now, Jesus hasn't yet gone to the cross. So his disciples, unlike us, they're not immediately going to think of the cross when they think of how Jesus loves them. So what will they think of? Any ideas? Washing the feet, that's right. He just washed their feet. 
So that's exactly what they're immediately going to think of. So now all the humility and sacrifice required by that example, along with the references to cleansing from sin, suddenly makes sense. Jesus was giving a lived example of the sort of love he had for the disciples and foreshadowing the greater love of the cross. For us, we can see that Jesus' love for all his disciples, including us, is far deeper and and far greater than mere foot washing. We know that he laid his life down for us. As Paul says in Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That extravagant, self-sacrificing love, that is the sort of love that Jesus is asking us to have for one another. That's what's new. That's what makes this commandment so different from the first two, the two greatest commandments. Remember, the first commandment demands that we love God with all our being. Everything in us belongs to him. This is an all-consuming love. And all other commandments and loves must somehow fit within this, this first commandment. We have to be able to obey this first commandment in our obedience to all the other commandments. The second commandment asks that we love our neighbour as we love ourselves. This demands a love that doesn't place ourselves above others, but rather regards them as just as important as we are. It then acts on that understanding. But this new commandment, it goes far beyond the second, far beyond. Rather than merely loving people as much as we love ourselves, Jesus is demanding that we love our brothers and sisters in him more than we love ourselves. He's asking us to put our fellow disciples above our very own selves. This is what Jesus meant when he asked us to take up the cross. The cross is the symbol of sacrifice, of laying down our lives. Just like Jesus, we are to lay down our lives in many various and humiliating ways for one another. This sounds completely unrealistic, doesn't it? Totally bonkers. And that's why it's so important to recognise the limits of this commandment. There's really only one limit on this commandment, and that is the limit on its objects. In other words, this commandment is only demanding that we love a certain group of people in this sacrificial way. Jesus told his disciples, love one another. Now, a crucial piece of context. You might have noticed it. It was found in verse 31. As soon as Judas left the room. Jesus said. Do you see it? 
as soon as Judas left the room. Once Judas left the room, the only people included in the one another were Jesus' true disciples. Jesus wasn't asking his disciples to love their enemies this way. He simply said, love your enemies, pray for them. Jesus wasn't asking his disciples to love their neighbours this way. This isn't a trivial distinction because sacrificial love like this is, is actually not humanly possible. If we try to love random people this way in our own strength, it will eat us alive. You've probably seen people that, that love like this. They do not last. They don't survive. This type of love is only possible because of the presence of Jesus' spirit in each of us. When the Holy Spirit is present in each person who's loving this way, what you'll see is a mutually sacrificial love which builds one another up. Rather than seeing one or a few people feeding others by diminishing themselves, you'll see a community, a body, Mutually loving one another and building one another up by sacrificing themselves for each other. This is actually an image of God himself, the Holy Trinity. Throughout all eternity, the Father, the Son and the Spirit have participated in a mutual self-sacrificing love. And Jesus is inviting us to join in. Imagine that. Joining in to the Godhead. But it doesn't stop there. This sacrificial love has extraordinary fruit. Remember the wrong-headed idea that the third love is to love the lost. Well, loving the lost isn't wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the wrong priority. You see, the fruit of the real third love is directly related to the lost. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I cannot emphasize the importance of this verse enough. This verse is absolutely core to understanding the nature of the church of Jesus Christ. If we fail to understand the importance of this verse, and we often do, we'll fail to be effective for Christ. If we don't love each other as Christ loved us, the lost will be unable to see Jesus at work. You might think I'm exaggerating. You might think, prophecy or miracles or uh, you'd think they'd show Jesus or, or perhaps social justice, caring for the poor or extraordinary sermons unlike this one or speaking in tongues, a brilliant understanding of the world. But these things by themselves cannot show Jesus. They just show people doing human stuff. Or they show some power that's just disconnected from God's love. 
When the church prioritises retirement and aged care, foster and kinship care, family support, youth support or social housing, Jesus becomes invisible to the world. When that's our priority, the world doesn't see Jesus. Don't believe me? Well, listen to Paul, the Apostle Paul, in a chapter that people love to quote in their weddings, even if they're not Christians, but they don't really understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, from verse 1, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge. And if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing the key to following Christ is to love rightly Jesus gives us three commandments relating to love if we can obey them then the world will know that we are Jesus disciples that will lead to both persecution and revival but it won't lead to an irrelevant declining church now the million dollar the million dollar question is how how do we love one another as Jesus loved us well the example of foot washing shows that it can happen in the everyday we just need to be on the lookout for opportunities. I don't think you'll find that many opportunities to f for foot washing today because people wear shoes, our streets aren't dusty and there's not a lot of poo out there. Not on the streets anyway. Maybe on a farm foot washing would be helpful. But foot washing shows that this sort of love is not comfortable. So don't look for comfortable opportunities. Look for uncomfortable opportunities. Here are some practical thoughts for today. We, cannot love, we can't love one another if we don't spend time together. If you're not spending time with your fellow disciples, with other Christians, you can't show the world Jesus because you can't love each other. It's that simple. Some... I think they're foolish people think that Christians getting together regularly is a waste of time. Those Christians should be out there witnessing. But given that our greatest witness is how we love one another, how can we do that solo? I, I grew up being taught this and it's just wrong. It's taken me decades to realise, to learn that as Christians we can only show Jesus in the way that we are together. So spend time. Spend time with other Christians. Don't be ashamed. 
and do it in public. Meet in coffee shops, work in each other's front yards, visit each other in hospital, help each other out. Don't stint on one another. As Protestant Christians, we have the strange view that we waste time or gifts if we spend it on each other. We should be spending it on, on the lost, on the poor, but that's wrong. That's just wrong. We should have an overflow so that we are spending on those outside the church. But if we're not spending on the church, we just look pathetic. People don't see Jesus. If the ch- it was... It was the church's love for one another that transformed the Roman Empire. The early church didn't set up hospitals for Roman citizens. It cared for its own. And it made the abandoned its own and then cared for them. The church reaches out to the lost, brings them in and loves them. Our ministry to strangers in a retirement village or a youth centre doesn't show people Christ. It's our love for one another which reaches out to embrace those who then see Jesus, which changes the world. We can't follow a business model for this. If you've got a if if you're relying on a business model for your ministry, Business models just have no room for self-sacrifice powered by the Holy Spirit. I've never figured out how to get that into a business model anyway. And don't try to do this on your own. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a key partner in this great endeavour. And we can only love one another if we have one another. We need to be a body, a body, not a bunch of solo sailors. There's many more things I could say. I could go on and on and on. If you had a week, we might be finished, maybe not. But I want to finish by continuing Paul's thoughts on love in 1 Corinthians 13. So as I read out Paul's enumeration of the characteristics of love i i'd like it if you could be thinking and praying about how to express those aspects of love with one another okay now you have a chance coming right up after the final song we have morning tea now i don't know if you're aware but morning tea is not about getting the energy for the drive home It's about spending time with one another, getting to know one another, loving one another. Loving one another as Jesus loved us. You have a chance to do that. So, you ready to think and pray about how to love one another? Let's go through Paul's definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love is not boastful. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. 
Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but love does rejoice whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful. And love endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever. Amen.